The scripture is from 2 Samuel chapter 20. Read verses 1 through 3. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Let's go before the Lord again. Our God and our Father, we thank you once more for your faithfulness. Oh God, we will never know the heights and the depths and the width and the breadth of how faithful you are, but I pray that you would help us to march a little bit farther down that road today. Oh God, please help us to understand with our minds, yes, but more so to feel deeply in our hearts just how great and how faithful you are. Oh Father, open our eyes that we might see how massive and mighty is the rock of your faithfulness that's under our feet. We thank you for what you'll do now in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. King David was driven into exile by the discipline of the Lord, and King David was sustained in exile by the steadfast love of the Lord. Both things. When the time was right, The Lord opened up the door for David to return to Israel and to be her king. And along the way, we saw last week that David showered mercy on other people as an overflow of the mercy that God had poured into his own life. We saw three specific things. First of all, whereas David could have pronounced a death sentence upon this man named Shimei who had cursed him on his way into exile... David instead extended to him clemency and showered mercy upon him and the thousand men that were with him and everybody who had allied with this guy. David was overflowing with the steadfast love of the Lord that was manifest in his life. He was not just being nice, he was overflowing. Second, we saw that David very kindly treated a man named Mephibosheth and another man named Ziba. They, they too could have received a death sentence David would have been perfectly just to pronounce them dead. But instead, he not only extended mercy and and issued clemency in their case, but he granted them land and possession and many blessings beside. David was overflowing with the steadfast love of the Lord that had so powerfully manifest in his life. This was not just a man being nice to people. This was a man learning to be like his father. And then we saw David blessed a man named Barzillai. Iron Man was his name. Barzillai had provided for David in exile, and now David told this man that he would provide for him richly all the days of his life. David wanted to heap a lifetime of blessings upon this man for a short season of kindness. You see, David could have just said thank you. 
David could have just given a one-time gift and said, thank you so much, my friend, for what you did. But David's heart was overflowing with the steadfast love of the Lord, and he wanted to heap a kind of blessing upon this man that would display for all the world to see how much he comprehended, how much he felt, how much he was grateful to the Lord for his steadfast love. Beloved, when the steadfast love of the Lord truly captivates a person's life, when it moves from being a subject in our minds to being something that actually characterizes our being, oh, that truth becomes manifest in the way that we treat other people. That truth becomes manifest in the way that we overflow in one situation after another. And the mercy that overflows from us in this way is really nothing more than a visible demonstration of the fact that God is at work in our lives. And so last week, the lesson was not go out there and be nice to people like David was nice to people. It was not a moralistic lesson. Last week, the lesson was look to your father and see how steadfast he is and learn to go into this world and imitate him. Just like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, as dearly loved children, as eternal recipients of the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ, Paul said, be imitators of God. Go out into this world and overflow with the mercy that has been so richly poured upon you. This is, I think, how we have to understand David at this time of his life. After all that David and his close friends had been through, it must have been an amazing thing to experience what they were experiencing as they were traveling back to Israel. But it turns out, we see at the end of chapter 19, that all was not well in the land. Unfortunately, the northern ten tribes of Israel, when they had all gathered there by the Jordan River, they began to argue with the other southern tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe. So you had one tribe from the south, the tribe of Judah, you had ten tribes up in the north, and they're now dividing from each other, frankly, because of of a fleshly desire. The northern ten tribes, basically, they say this. They basically say that we're the ones that should be getting credit for bringing King David back into the land. We were the first ones to invite him back. We should be getting the credit for bringing him back. We should be the ones escorting him back into the land. And whereas to us this might just seem like a stupid childish argument, believe me, this was not childish. This was a full-grown adult fleshly argument. You know what they really wanted? They wanted access to the king, they wanted position, and they wanted power. That's what they were really after. This is a political maneuver. This is not just childlike whining. The tribe of Judah answered back to them and said, listen, here's the reason we brought David back into the land. It was not to dispute with you. We are one people, we are one country, we love you. We're bringing David back into the land because he's from the tribe of Judah. He's actually our flesh and blood. And what's more, he invited us to bring him back into the land. So we weren't doing this to dispute with you. We're just trying to cooperate with God and bringing him back in to his rightful place. Unfortunately, I think because of the fleshly desires in their hearts, the Israelites were not persuaded. And they began to argue more and more fiercely, more and more intensely. But the author tells us at the end of chapter 19, the very last verse, I think it's verse 43, He simply says that the words of Judah were fiercer than the words of Israel. In other words, they had won the argument, at least as far as the debate goes. They had come to a place where the Israelites could say no more. 
Now, before we move on from there into chapter 20, I want you to notice something with me that I think is very important, and that is, did you notice that in this argument, David was completely silent? It's an important point. David doesn't say a word. David doesn't try to intervene. David doesn't try to reconcile and work for peace. He doesn't do a thing. And the question in my mind is why? Why at this crucial moment is David silent? You may remember from last week that they were gathered in the city of Gilgal. That's the city where Joshua and all the Israelites had renewed the covenant before God. And it seems such a sacred thing that they're back in that city again and they're trying to reconcile the country again. So in the midst of that context, why is David silent? And after giving it lots of thought, I just have three quick things to say. First of all, I don't think David was being passive here. I don't think that's the answer to the problem. David was many things, both good and bad. We've tried to see that well over the last few months. But one thing David was not was passive. There were times in his family where he probably should have acted in more boldness. But I literally can't think of another time at a national level where David acted in passivity because he was just not a passive man. This was not his heart. And I really don't think that in this case, passivity is to explain for for his silence. So second option is, But even though David is there in Gilgal with his people, it's possible that he had not fully been reinstated as the king. It's possible that they're moving in that direction, but the deal is not done, and that David didn't feel that he had the clout to broker the peace yet. He may have felt that if he intervened, he would have caused more problems than he solved, and so he just wanted to step back and say, listen, you guys gotta work this out. Third possibility, which I think is closer to the truth, is I think David might have seen this argumentation and wonder to himself if the discipline of God in his life was complete or not. Do you remember the one word God spoke to him? He said, the sword will never depart from your household. Do you remember that? I think when David watched these guys starting to argue so quickly upon his return, I think something in David's heart sunk and he just went, oh man, God's word is true. And it doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter where I go, It just doesn't matter what I do. My sin is gonna follow me all the days of my life. And there's nothing I can do to intervene. So whatever God will do, let him do. But I think what I should do is just step back and let God work this out. Not passivity, but faith. I really think David was saying, just let the Lord do this. You remember when he was going into exile and Shimei began to curse him? And some people wanted to kill Shimei? And and what did David say? He said, don't do that because God might be in this, and if God is in it, I don't wanna get in God's way. Well, I think that's what's happening here. I don't think David is being passive, and I don't think he's completely sunk into despair. I just think he thinks that he's gotta let the Lord do whatever it is that the Lord has to do, and for that, I respect him very much. Now, the author tells us at the beginning of chapter 20 that no matter what Judah's verbal dominance was over Israel, their winning of the argument did not solve the problem. Unfortunately, just as the debate seemed to settle down, if you will, a man named Sheba rose up and he fiercely opposed David. Specifically, he blew a trumpet, which was a way of raising a battle cry, and he shouted aloud with these words. He said, we, that is the northern tribes of Israel, we have no portion with David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, who was David's father. Every man to his tent, O Israel. In other words, he's saying, defect from David and defect right now. There will be no reconciliation in the land. 
Now you'll notice in verse one that the Bible calls this man a worthless man. That's a phrase that the Bible uses often for people like this, and what it means is that he was fleshly, he was cold toward God, he was all about himself, he was a bad influence on other people. You will know a tree by its fruit, isn't that true? And the fruit of Sheba's life tells us one thing for sure, this man did not know God. This man had no relationship to God. I I have no doubt that he used the name of the Lord in persuading people, but he did not know the Lord. This man's heart was hard toward God, and in that sense, he was a worthless man. Be that as it may, he was evidently charismatic. He was evidently a powerful person, because just like that, the people of Israel decided to follow him. They had just extended to David the invitation to come back into the land, and no sooner had he stepped his foot across the Jordan and into the promised land, but the entire ten tribes of Israel defected from him because of the persuasiveness of Sheba and surely because of the hardness of their own hearts. Now that's a very sad thing. But the, by the grace of God, the tribe of Judah remained faithful to David. I love that the author said they remained steadfast to him. That's an important word. They remain steadfast to their covenant. They remain uh, faithful to their promises to him. And they went with David from the Jordan River all the way on into Jerusalem. But even as they were entering into the city, beloved, the question was hanging in the air, and it was a serious question. And the question was simply this, will David be reestablished, or is he done? If I can put it another way, will David, by the grace of God, be, over to, be able to overcome the greatest of his sins? Or will the greatest of David's sins ruin the calling that God had put upon his life? Is it over for David? Now, for those of us who've read the Bible, we know the ultimate answer to this question. But, beloved, put yourself in David's spot. He did not know the future. His people didn't know the future. His opponents did not know the future. They did not know what was coming. And believe me, this question was powerful, and it was hanging in the air, and everybody was asking it in one way or another. What will happen? Will David be reestablished or is David done? Will Israel be reunited under his leadership or will they be hopelessly divided despite his return? And so it is that with great grief in their hearts and heavy questions on their minds, David and his men and his whole tribe made the trek back to Jerusalem and they entered into the city. And the Bible tells us that once they arrived, David began to settle into his own home. He retained his property. He's beginning to resettle again back into his life, and he's making decisions. And it seems that the first major decision that he made was about these 10 concubines that he had left behind in Jerusalem to care for his house. These 10 women were among those that David had taken for himself to be something more than a girlfriend and something less than a wife. Or as Pastor Kevin said so well a few weeks ago, These were friends with benefits, heavy emphasis on the benefits. These were the 10 women that when David did leave them behind, Absalom defiled them in a private tent, but in a public place in the sight of all Israel. These were the 10 women who were a partial fulfillment of the Lord's word against David, that the Lord would take David's wives and give them to another in the sight of all Israel and in the sight of the son. 
This does not mean that God was responsible for the evil, evil that Absalom committed because God never commanded Absalom to do anything. God just stepped back and let Absalom do what he would. And in his evil heart, Absalom did what he did and God used it to fulfill his word of discipline for David. These are the 10 women we're talking about, beloved. Think about what it would be like to be them. Now David is back home and it's just a huge question on his heart. What am I gonna do with these women? He can't marry them again because this is strictly forbidden. Biblically, culturally, there's no way. That's not gonna happen. No reuniting is gonna happen there. Just given the cultural milieu, won't go into the details, but bottom line, these women could no longer marry another man in Israel. So what were they gonna do? Here's what David decided to do. He decided to provide for them a house. I'm sure it was a nice house. He decided to give them a lifetime of provisions, everything that they needed, and he decided to give them around the clock security. In other words, he surrounded the house with a guard. Now some people think that this means David was putting them under house arrest. Some people think that David was punishing them for their part in what had happened with Absalom, but I strongly disagree with that. I could be wrong, and if you disagree with me, I'm fine to to discuss that with you, but at this point, I just don't think this is David's heart at all. I have not been afraid to point out where I think David is, is flawed and where we should not admire him, but in this area, I don't think that he's trying to punish these women. I think he's trying to protect them. Let's just be frank about it. David's concubines wouldn't have been the least good-looking people in the land. Are we agreed about that? These women would have been the most beautiful women in the country. They now had no husband. They now had no attachment to the king. And believe me, if he had just sent them on their way, they would have been in great danger. They would have had no way to protect themselves. And so I think David was caring for their physical safety as well as for their needs. Now, I am not saying at all that we should admire David for this. Believe me, I am not saying that. Please hear me say this. David ruined those 10 women's lives. He ruined their lives. Do you see what it says about them? The main thing that's said about them is that they lived the rest of their lives like they were widows. He ruined their lives. And I want us to just stop here for a second and think about this. The power of the consequence of our sins. You know, I think that often we think our sin is a private and personal thing. Whether we would say it out loud or not, we think this in our hearts. Believe me, there's not a single sin we commit that is purely private and purely personal. Not a single one. If you do something that's completely out of other people's sight, and maybe, you know, in the ranking of sins, it's not a huge deal, let me, let me suggest to you that that will still affect everybody around you. Because our sin has the effect of hardening our hearts toward God. And when my heart is hard toward God, I can't be the light to you for him that I should be. My sin is never purely private and personal. Never. And the greater the sin, the greater the public effects. Beloved, because David just had to fulfill a momentary fleeting desire. The king just had to have what the king wanted to have when he wanted to have it. People died. People end up living the rest of their lives as widows because David just had to fulfill a fleeting desire. And I just want to say, let our hearts think about this. Our sin matters. Our sin has consequences for other people. Maybe right now in your life, you're contemplating doing something big and really stupid. And I want to encourage you. God has brought you here today to confront you because he loves you. Please listen to him. Please let God intervene. Please let God put his hands up, put the brakes on, and stop you from doing what you're thinking of doing. Please listen. Your sin is not even mainly about you. 
Your sin will greatly affect other people, and so will mine. So I'm just saying, all of us, beloved, all of us, let's contemplate this part of David and realize we could be him. Pastor Kevin and I were talking a few weeks ago and just both saying, listen, we've never done the things David did. However, we've never been in the position of power David was in, right? I never had the opportunity David had. And I would hope that I wouldn't go that way, but who knows? Who knows? Who am I to say that I'm greater than David? I am not greater than David. My heart is not greater than David. I could be him. So I think the Lord is not trying to shame David in front of the entire kingdom of God by putting this in the Bible. I think God is graciously using David's sin to warn us all and say, don't walk in that way. And I'll bet you right this moment, David is praising Jesus for using his life as a cautionary so let's listen, beloved. Let's let the word of God have its way inside of our lives. After attending to this and surely other matters, David turned his heart toward the situation in the country and toward the, the tragedy that was about to happen, the split that was about to happen in the country. And just to show you that he is not a passive man, he made a very swift decision and he made a very severe decision, just like that. He called to him Amasa, who was now the commander over the army. And basically what he said was, Amasa, I want you to gather all the warriors of Judah. I'll give you three days to do it. And when you come here, I want you to hightail it after Sheba. I want you to catch him, and I want you to kill him. Now, the reason that I'm adding this piece, kill him, if you read your Bibles, you won't see go kill him. But I'm seeing this in the words where it says, get to him before he can get inside of a fortified city. Believe me, David is saying, put his life to an end. David is wanting to act swiftly in justice, and we need to stop here for a second and think about what's going on. David is a man who is totally overwhelmed in his life with the steadfast love of God, with the mercy of God in his life. But please hear this. Mercy is not always the correct response to every situation. Isn't that right? Clemency is not always the best response. When a person is doing what they should not be doing in a way that's going to affect, in David's case, three million other people, something has to be done. We have seen that David's heart was overflowing with mercy. He was bent toward mercy. And I think to anybody who would, humbled, who would have humbled themselves before God and David, David would have acted in mercy. I really believe that. But Sheba did not act in mercy. Sheba was as arrogant as arrogant could be and beloved, there was really nothing to do but punish him and punish him severely. And for my part, I think that David was right on the mark to make a swift and severe judgment. After all, David knew that God was the one bringing him back into the land. And therefore, David knew that Sheba was mainly fighting against God and leading God's people away from him. So he had to do what he had to do. And again, I just want to say that I think he was right. Now, as I said, David gave Amasa three days to gather the troops, but for whatever reason, he failed. He missed the deadline. David knew that time was a-wasting, and so he called to him Joab's brother, Abishai. He did not call Joab back to command. He called his brother, Abishai, and he gave Abishai the job, and Abishai got the job done. Just like that, he gathered Joab, he gathered all the mighty men of Israel, and they tore off toward the north to get Sheba and to do justice. About six or eight miles up the road, Amasa actually meets them. Somehow he gets himself together, he hightails it up to a place called Gibeon and he meets them. And as he's coming into the camp, he has no idea that he's in mortal danger. Joab, as soon as he set his eyes on him, he began to walk toward him. And the Bible said that he had his warrior robes on, whatever that means, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. But 
Imagine whatever you will in your mind. Perhaps we'll imagine Noah up there today, dressed like a kind of warrior. But he had his warrior robe on, and the Bible says that as he was walking toward Amasa, his, his sword dropped out of his, his robe. This was not an accident. This is actually a plan. So apparently, he reached down and grabbed the sword with his left hand, and the reason he would have done that is because this was not the fighting hand. This was the fighting hand. So for him to grab the sword with his left hand was a way of subtly sending a signal to Amasa that he's not in danger. And then the Bible says that Joab grabbed him by the beard to kiss him, which was a normal greeting, and he did it with the right hand, which was the hand you should have given a greeting with. So the bottom line is Amasa is off guard, and he doesn't think he's in any danger, and Joab seizes upon that opportunity, and I'll spare you the graphic details, but he put him to death right there, and he did it very, very swiftly. Now, Joab is a complicated character, isn't he? He's the kind of guy you kind of have to think about. And I'm not 100% sure what's going on in his heart right now. I think on the one hand, he definitely has some selfish ambition. I think he wants his spot back. I think he thinks it was a mistake to put Amasa in his spot. And I think he's getting rid of the competition, so to speak. But to be honest with you, more than that, I actually think Joab thinks that he's doing the right thing for his king and for his country. Remember, Amasa was David's stepson. He was Absalom's stepbrother. And just like that, Amasa turned against his stepdad, went with the conspiracy, and then Amasa was the guy who led the army out to kill David just days before this whole incident took place. Probably a week, two weeks earlier, this guy had led an army that tried to kill David. I actually think that Joab was trying to remove a threat to his king and to remove a threat to the kingdom more than he was doing any other thing. I would not deny that he had fleshly stuff going on here. But after this, beloved, Joab never gets punished for this. We never see him using this as a stepping stone to get more power or anything. It's just over. The the story is over. And so again, I'm open to whatever you would think about Joab. He's a complicated guy. I've been thinking about him a lot. But I actually, I actually do think that in his heart, whether he's right or wrong, I think that he thinks that he was doing what was right by the king. No matter what the case is, here's the bottom line. Amasa is out and Joab is back in. He's the commander of the army again. And the men of, of Judah are following him up north to get Sheba and to do the will of the king. That's the bottom Line. In due time, Joab reached that city where Sheba was hiding. Unfortunately, they had gotten there too late and he was held up in a stronghold. So Joab did what he knew how to do. He built a rampart around that city and the Bible says that they began to batter the wall to try to knock the wall down and get into him. While they were doing that, a wise woman of the city requested to talk to Joab. And by the grace of God, Joab said yes. And this wise woman basically said, sir, Our city is known, we're famous for this, for counsel and for wisdom. Sir, we are a mother city in Israel. So why in the world would you destroy the heritage of the Lord? Joab, what are you doing? Joab listened to this woman, which to me gives us insight into his heart, beloved. This is not a hard-hearted guy in many ways. He listens to the woman. He hears her wisdom and he says, ma'am, I promise you, if that's what you heard, you heard the wrong thing. That's not true. What's going on here is there's a guy who's rebelled against the king and he's hiding in your city. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not from your tribe, but we gotta get this guy. And if we get this guy, it'll be enough. We're not after your city. We're after this guy. The woman is wise. 
she very quickly makes a decision and she says, sir, if that's the case, we're on your side. And in fact, we will do the deed of justice for you. I promise you very soon, his head will be coming over the wall to you. Now, she made this decision as a wise woman. She was wise. This means something to me, namely that David made the right decision. I really think this is one way the Lord is saying David is not out of control here and he's not out of line. David made the right decision. This man needed justice and he needed it swiftly and the wise woman agreed. So she went into her city, she talked to her elders and they carried out the deed and it was over. And I know that culturally for us this is a gruesome way to put someone to death but actually for the vast majority of history in human being, this was actually a compassionate way to put people to death because it was swift and it was over. So for us, it's brutal, but we gotta put that aside and see what's really happening in the story here. Justice is being done to a man who refuses to humble himself before God and before others, a man who is trying to divide the people of God. And the Lord has now seen that justice was done. When that was done, Joab blew the trumpet, pulled his men back, and they all went home. For the fourth time now, beloved, in all these stories, for the fourth time, we see that Joab is not a bloodthirsty man. When his job is done, when the king's will has been fulfilled, he withdraws. His men went to their own homes. Joab went back to Jerusalem. And wouldn't you love to hear the conversation that happened between David and Joab? I sure would, but it's not there. The author says nothing. He just says what he says in verses 23 through 26. Look there, if you will. They're very exciting verses. It's basically a list of of David's administration. This guy did that, that guy did this, this guy did that. And you might be thinking, what the heck? What a way to end the story. This is the second time that the author has done this. If you've been with us since the beginning of 1st or 2nd Samuel, you might remember that in 2nd Samuel 8, the author also provided a list of David's administration because the point was this. He was trying to say, David has now been fully established, his people have moved into their offices, and they have control over the country. These little verses, 23 through 26, are the author's way of saying, that the short-term consequences of David's sin in the country have come to an end. He is now reigning again over all the people of God. He is now reestablished again in Jerusalem by the steadfast love of the Lord the king has brought back into the land, and he is reigning over all. So in a sense, this is about David's administration, and in a sense, beloved, this is about the steadfast love of God. God had just shown for all of the world to see that he was going to be faithful to his words to David in 2 Samuel 7. He was going to be faithful to his words to Israel, first through Abraham and then through Moses and then through Samuel and then through David. He was going to be faithful to all the nations of the earth because through Abraham he said, My son, I am going to take you to myself. I'm going to make of you a nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless all the other nations. Beloved, through the story of 2 Samuel 11 through 20, God is shouting to the world that he is faithful. This is mainly about God. He is saying that no matter the waywardness of my people or the flaws in my chosen leaders, the brokenness of my my chosen leaders, the sinfulness in my chosen leaders, no matter what, I will fulfill my purposes in the earth. Beloved, this whole story is a massive cry to the universe that God is steadfast in his love. If anything would have gotten God to quit on his people, this whole scenario would have gotten God to quit. But he will not quit until his purposes are fulfilled. Amen? 
The best news in the universe right there, beloved. The saga of David's most famous sins is now over. The story from 2 Samuel 11 to 20 is now done. But the steadfast love of the Lord, that remains forever. So with that in mind, I want to just draw out three very quick lessons and then we'll pray together. The first lesson is simply what I've already been saying. The steadfast love of the Lord is the greatest hope that we have in this life. And here's the thing. You've heard me say this very thing a thousand times from this very pulpit. But I'm going to say it to you again another thousand times if God gives me life and gives me opportunity. Because it's easy to understand in the mind, but it is so powerful to let this sink deep, deep, deep into your heart. Believe me, if you are deeply convinced in your heart that God is steadfast in love, it will be the most stabilizing thing in your entire life. Whether things are going well or whether things are in absolute chaos in our culture and in our world, which they kind of are right now, in the midst of chaos, we set our eyes on God and we say he is faithful and he is in total control. Think about the chaos it would have felt like to be with David through all these things, and yet God was completely calm. He was steadfast and faithful. And beloved, all I want to say to you right now is don't harden your heart to a lesson you've already heard. Let the Lord teach you. He is steadfast in love. He is faithful to his promises, and he will not quit until all of his purposes in Jesus Christ have been complete. Second thing, when I look at this chapter in particular, I see this lesson, that even when we're gripped by the steadfast love of the Lord, our hearts are bent toward mercy. They should be bent toward mercy. But we need to be willing to rise up and act in justice when we have to do that, when the situation calls for that. Just because you have been overwhelmed by the mercy of the Lord doesn't mean that you give mercy to every single person. There are times when we have to rise up and oppose people. There are times when we even have to pursue people. There are times where we have to even seek to enact justice against people because we are doing the will of God. Now I know this calls for great wisdom, but we need that wisdom. Mercy is not always the proper response to every situation. We are bent toward mercy. We would love to give mercy, but if we're dealing with totally hard-hearted people, sometimes we have to rise up by the power of God and act in justice. So may the Lord give us wisdom through his word, by his spirit, and through the community of faith. May the Lord give us wisdom to know when is the time for mercy and when is the time for justice. There are a time for both things. And by the way, they're not opposed to each other. Mercy and justice are not opposite things. They're complementary things. And I pray that God will help us to see that. Third, the short-term saga of David's most famous sin is over. But please understand this, that all the suffering he's gone through from chapter 13 forward was not nearly enough to pay the penalty for his sins. Please don't think that chapters 13 through 20 and all that David has been through is a sort of penance that David is doing to, to make, make his sins good with God. David could never pay for his sins. You and I could never pay for our sins. There's not a possibility on this earth that we could make payment for our sins. David was a humble man. He was willing to receive the discipline of the Lord. But beloved, David needed a savior. David was the sinful king and he needed a sinless king. David was a broken king and he needed an unbroken king. David was a faithless king and he needed a faithful king. David needed a savior, beloved. And praise be to God that his entire life points us toward that savior. 
His sins make us realize that David is not the one that we should ultimately idolize, but that we need to look to another. His sins point toward the day when Jesus Christ would come and walk this earth and live a perfectly righteous life. Aren't you glad that there's not a moment in Jesus' life where we come to an, like an oh no moment? Did he really do that? We didn't want him to do that. Did he really do that? There's no such moment in Jesus' life, beloved. He remained faithful to God all the way to death on a cross, and then he gave himself up so gladly, so willingly did he suffer to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he hung on that cross and breathed his last breath, when he said, it is finished, David's discipline was resolved, beloved. David got all the forgiveness he needed through Jesus Christ, not through penance. The discipline of the Lord in David's life was good for him, but it did not sacrifice for his sin. It didn't, it didn't provide for his sin. David needed a savior, and so do we. And the positive aspects of David's life, despite his sin, still pointed toward Jesus, especially this, that David was the praising king, the singing king of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of praise. And he pointed positively toward the day when the Lord Jesus would rise up to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of praise, the one who sings the praise of God. And if you doubt that Jesus will sing the praise of God, read Hebrews chapter 2. It says that in the midst of the whole congregation, Jesus will sing of the glory of his Father. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of King David. David was a dim, dim light post pointing us toward a greater Savior. And my heart this morning is that we would look at this whole story and believe in that great Savior. That's my greatest desire for today. If you've never believed in Christ, please believe me. Like David, you need a Savior. Like me, you need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, and he's here today stretching out his arms to you. All you have to do is look to him and believe in him and hope in him, and your sins will be gone. There is nothing you can do to pay for your sin, but Christ has already paid that penalty for you, and all you have to do is believe. And if you have already believed in Jesus, oh, beloved, please just let him teach you again how sacred a gift it is that you have a Savior who made a sacrifice big enough to cover all your sins. And like David, you are now, through Christ, in fellowship with God forever. No greater gift, no greater news. Let's now just bow ourselves before God. What else is there to do but to look to the Lord and say thank you, to look to the Lord and praise him along with David. Father, I have little doubt that somehow or other David is praising your name right now. It wouldn't even surprise me, Father, if in your grace you gave him a pipeline and let him hear what I preach today. I, whatever the case is, I know that he's rejoicing in your presence, and I thank you for your eternal grace, your eternal power, your eternal mercy in his life. I thank you for lifting the example of him before us for both good and bad reasons. I thank you for disciplining him. I thank you for bringing that season of discipline to an end, and I thank you for using his life to speak into our lives. No, Father, please, by your spirit, do just that. Please, by your spirit, use this word in powerful ways. And Father, I pray that with tremendous joy because I know that you have already done that and I know that you will continue to do that. And so we thank you for what you will do in the high, the holy, the happy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.